I was driving to a funeral of a distant relative one day, and I thought to myself while I was driving, hey, I think I'll just make chocolate from scratch. I didn't even know what that meant. But within three months of that idea, I was in the Amazon studying how farmers can influence the flavor of chocolate by how they harvest these beans. It was just one day driving, and that's it. Then I went to the Amazon. I came back. Uh, I started to wind down my law practice, which took a year to wind that down. I bought a building, bought the equipment. This was when nobody was doing it. There were really two or three of us that were starting in the United States at the same time. And then now here we are 12 years later. While story invites us to ask powerful questions, your life and your story are shaped by the questions you ask. What is the story that you ache to tell? The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. Here at the studio in our story offices, I recently had an incredible conversation with one of the coolest guys I've ever met, Sean Askinosi. There's a lot of our episodes that begin with this idea of, I'll introduce the person's name, and then we get a, a very short few second glimpse into what they do for a living. And what's interesting is, I, is I, would, I used to start the question with, if you're sitting on an airplane and someone's like, what do you do? And you say, I am a, what would you say? And it just... I started getting all these crazy questions because I interview a lot of creative people and they have a hard time. I don't know if it's because they don't want to be put in a box or they don't want to reduce who they feel like they are to a little <laughs> phrase that you could put on a business card. But um, what is it that you say that you do if you were to say, I am a what? Depends on how long the flight is. But um, <laughs> if, if it's just a puddle jumper, I'd say uh, I make chocolate and I buy cocoa beans from farmers around the world and run a small family business. That's my day job. My full-time, long-term job over the arc of my life, I think, is that I aspire to be a joyful participant in the sorrows of the world. That's my aspiration. Wow. Say that one more time. My aspiration is to be a joyful participant in the sorrows of the world. That's a, a rephrase of uh, Joseph Campbell. At this point, we should probably tell you a little about who this guy is. Sean used to be a lawyer, but about 15 years ago, he quit and started his own chocolate company called Askinosi Chocolate. And it's a little hard to overstate how radical his business is. His chocolate is really bean to bar, an authentic single origin experience in which the actual cocoa farmers from all over the world have a stake in the final product. He's been featured in places like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Forbes called his company one of the 25 best small companies in America. He wrote a book called Meaningful Work, which you'll hear us talk about today. O Magazine said Sean was, quote, one of the 15 guys saving the world. By the end of this conversation, I think you'll see why. This idea of, and I wasn't expecting to get here this soon, but you've already gone there. Um, this idea of, what was the famous quote about sorrow, joy being on the other side of our sorrow? Khalil Gibran said that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And, and that's, I believe that. And you said one of the challenges, I guess, of finding meaningful work is to spend some time with our sorrow. Right. That, that caught me completely off guard when I read that. Um, and I, I actually, I struggled with it a little bit in the beginning, and I'm sure you've watched other people do the same. Unpack that idea for us. What does that mean? It means where is your heart broken? And is it still broken? And when did that happen and how did it happen? And tell me about it. Tell me about the hurt and the pain. So um, that sorrow is really um, brokenheartedness. And so often people who have experienced a broken heart um, speak a different language. They, they, they speak a language of grief. Uh, some people are more fluent than others. Um, and we don't uh, come into this world hoping 
that we will one day become fluent in the language of grief, but it happens. And so the challenge is, is there um, a possibility that we can take our own broken heart and that we can uh, let that become a place of joy uh, for us that actually even surpasses the depth of our brokenheartedness? It feels somewhat counterintuitive. It does feel counterintuitive. The first thing I think um, is, it's funny, I talk to students and groups of all ages, and I love talking to uh, kids. And we have a program in our town called Chocolate University, so I spend a lot of time talking to middle school kids. <laughs> and it's funny, when you, when you talk to middle school kids and you say, do you know what it feels like to have a broken heart? They're all like, oh, yeah, 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 you know, I get it. I, I know what that means. I know what that feels like. But when I talk to, you know, middle-aged business professionals, they sit there thinking and sometimes saying to me, well, I've never really had anybody die close to me. And so I don't really think I have had a broken heart. And that's when I say, I want to grab them, you know, metaphorically by both shoulders and say, really? (laughs) Come on, man. What life are you living that you're 35 years old and you haven't had your heart broken? Let's break it. You know, let's find a way to break it. Because now I'm going to say this too. There, sure, of course, there are people who have, you know, maybe grown up and they lived this idyllic life and everybody's alive and no one's broken up with them and their health is great and everything's awesome. But that's just very, that's really uncommon. And so I think, and to your point of the, that, that it's counterintuitive to explore, it's because we think, well, if we explore our own sorrow, all we're going to get is more sorrow. There's just this bottomless pit of, of sadness and darkness, and it's, it's not true. You know, I'm not a Catholic, but the Catholics talk about something called the Paschal Mystery, and I love the Paschal Mystery, and it is essentially, it's easily explained, it's the Paschal Mystery is death to life, you know, death to resurrection, valley to mountaintop, um, darkness to light, and it's that passage it's the passage um, in those spaces of darkness to light where that's, that's life, you know? And we know, we know historically in our own personal lives, there will be light. It will happen. It doesn't feel like it, but we know that it's there. And that's where I think the mystery resides and where healing can happen. What does this this idea of figuring out where our sorrow lies and how our hearts have been broken, what does that have to do with her work? What I ask people if they're willing to do is first gain an awareness of, of their brokenheartedness, of their sorrow. And that's hard for a lot of people, especially the ones that you and I come in contact with that are type A, motivated, driven entrepreneurs um, (laughs) who don't want to sit down long enough to really um, go deep into their own soul. And so I lose a lot of people because they just resist that. But what it means is it means first develop a practice and um, a discipline of gaining awareness of the sorrow in our lives. And once we can become aware of our brokenheartedness, what I ask people to do is take that awareness um, of their own sorrow and then ask, in, in my world, I say, can you pray about this? Can you meditate on this? Can you, if you're not a praying person, ask the universe to grant you the following? Say, can you reveal to me a place where someone needs me in the way that I needed someone when my sorrow was born? 
And so what I'm asking is, I'm saying, can you reveal a person or people or a group near me that need me? So in other words, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm essentially putting my mouth into the head of a lion, right? Because it's my own pain. But I'm going there to serve that person or those people with zero expectation of anything in return. This is the paradox. This is Gandhi saying, you know, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others. Jesus said something similar, take up your cross and follow me. Die to self with the expectation of nothing. And what this, this mystery that happens is we find immeasurable joy in that in the present moment of being with someone who needs us that just happens to be in the same lane as our own pain. And so the next question is, well, but, what is, but I ask, what does that have to do with work? Here's what it has to do with it. We need that that I'm describing. We need this because it grants us clarity, clarity of mind, it sharpens our skills of discernment. We gain wisdom. And we, we gain all of these things in our life, I believe, in a way that is incomparable to other ways. Why? Because we're doing it on our own. Of course, we have teachers. We have wisdom teachers. We have people who help us. But ultimately, we are the ones that have to do this. So... And now there's so much noise and distraction in our periphery vision, you know, for you and I. I mean, it's, it's everything. It's books, like my book. It's podcasts. <laughs> it's conferences. It's, it's the Google search box. It's all of that. And so I think that now that practice is more challenging than ever. But I think for those people who are willing to do the work, that wisdom and clarity will bring us to the next place in our life. It'll bring us to... Um, vocation and to calling. Yeah. And I you, think. What's cool in the book, and this, this is, I don't want people to misunderstand, the, the book is not about how to take that single step and turn it into a vocation. You have multiple steps. And so that was one of the steps mm -hmm. that, it just really caught me off guard, which is why it stood out to me so much. But even in the next chapter you talk about, um, or maybe it's the same chapter, but this isn't just a, obviously it applies to someone like me who has a, um, where I would do what would be considered a lot of freelance work as myself under my own name. But someone who's building a company where you're supposed to sort of leave your kind of like your personal callings at home, um, the things that drive you and keep you awake at night, and kind of just bring only your skill set. You're saying even as a team, as a company, take all of that heartbroken uh, stuff, all of the sorrow of each person on your team, and there's a process that you would encourage them to walk through to figure out as a company collectively yes. what is the mission that you arrive at as a result of how everyone on your team has experienced sadness? Yes. And thank you for bringing that up because what the conversation that we just had for the last few minutes is absolutely applicable to a, a team or a small company or a large company. And leaders in the company or those decision makers can gather and talk about these things that you and I have been talking about in a delicate way that's respectful of the privacy of those involved and come to some conclusions about the vision for the company as it relates to um, these things that we're talking about, as it relates to finding out what, what are we really, for, like, for example, for us, we, one of the sayings that we have at the factory, and I talk about this in the book, is we say, it's not about the chocolate, it's about the chocolate. And <laughs> so what I'm saying is by that, and anybody can use it, you can use it, it applies, fill in the blank. It's not about the, it's about the whatever, insurance sales. It's not about the insurance sales, it's about the insurance sales. And what I'm saying by that is, is that I want people, please bring your the 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 vocations that you have in your personal life bring them to work because bring your whole self to the table and what will happen when you do that is the product or service that you provide i think will be better it will be better we'll, we will be better at work 
if we bring these other things that we're talking about to work with us. Why? Because the product or service that we deliver is inseparable from who we are. So why not bring it? Mm-hmm. Why not? Why not bring it to the table um, and let that be let that be part of what we bring to work, so that the depth of that can find its way into what like my chocolate bar. I could give my same recipe for chocolate to somebody down the street or in another state and say, "Here are the cocoa beans. Here's my recipe. Go make my chocolate bar." It will not be the same chocolate bar. Why? Because of who we are as people in my company, we can't untangle that from the final product. And I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I want to be part of that knot and that messy, you know, just thing that doesn't seem to all fit perfectly together. Uh, the Japanese call it wabi-sabi, but, um, you know, I, I, want to be, I want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I encourage people to bring their personal vocations and callings um, to work. I think it's absolutely possible for an organization to collectively have not just a mission, but a vision that they, that they all can uh, work on together. And for us, it's making chocolate. We want to make the best tasting direct trade chocolate in the world. But we also work with farmers and I, I just got, I was in the Philippines last week working with farmers. It was my 41st origin trip since I started the company 12 years ago. So I have not stopped meeting. I meet with the farmers from every place we buy beans every year. In two months, I'll be in the Amazon. And, and I love it. And we also work with students. We, have a, a, we only have 17 people in the company. We're a small family business, but we have something called Chocolate University, and we engage elementary school, middle school, and high school kids in our, in our community, in our business. And we take high school students to Tanzania every year, every other year, to meet cocoa farmers. I love that. I, I get to watch high school students literally transform before my very eyes, <laughs> you know, and, and meet these farmers and, and have this experience. And so our vocation is not only making great tasting chocolate. It's also working directly with farmers, having a relationship with them, working with students in our community. And all of that swirled together is our calling. That's our vocation. So what was the connecting point between you tapping into your sorrow and finding so much joy in chocolate? The, um, for me... When I, my dad died when I was 14, of, he, he died of lung cancer. He was a lawyer like me, my hero. And uh, it was a tough deal. We didn't have hospice, so I ended up giving him Demerol shots when I was 13. And um, that's, my childhood was over when he was diagnosed with cancer. And that I was 12. And the church people would come over and lay hands on him and, essentially yell that he was going to be healed. And they told me not to talk about death with him because then he wouldn't be healed. It'd be a sign of doubt and that Jesus wouldn't heal him. So I never, we never talked about death. And then, um, he died right in front of me and, and, uh, he was in court the week before on a case and uh, eventually the cancer spread to his brain. And, and I begged God out loud, you know, please don't let him die. Please let him live. And he died. And so, 25 years go by, I'm a powerful, successful, wealthy criminal defense lawyer, never lost a criminal jury trial, and um, I decided, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, that I would have a conversation with my grief. It just took me 25 years. (laughs) And so what I did is I started volunteering in the palliative care department at a local hospital, which for your listeners who don't know, that's hospice in the hospital. And meeting with patients on Fridays when I was in town, sometimes it'd be five patients, sometimes it'd be 15, and they'd be in various places in the hospital, uh, cardiac or neuro or oncology. A lot of them had cancer. I would just visit and just talk to them about whatever they wanted to talk about. Many of them didn't have visitors or family, and they were in some state of dying. And before I left their room, I would always ask if they would like me to say a prayer for them. And... 
um, almost all of them did want a prayer. And I would ask, what would you like me to pray for? And they would say a variety of things. Um, Pray that I live two more weeks to my 65th wedding anniversary or pray that I die today because I'm in such pain. And I would ask if I could touch their hand or their shoulder and I would use their exact words and pray it right back to them. And then those were really moments uh, measured in seconds that I actually thought about someone besides me. Mm -hmm. And then I would just, I would do my visits and then I'd leave the hospital and there were times when I walked out of the doors of the hospital that I felt like I was walking on air, that I was above the ground walking to my car. And that is joy. That's what that is. And so during those years, I did that for almost five years. During those years, I was able to have some, I had, I created some space in my mind and soul to think about what I should do next because I had to leave the law. I couldn't do it anymore. I loved it. And then I didn't. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to that, but I struggled for five years about what to do. While I was still doing my job, I did, I did a good job, you know, and I worked hard, but I was struggling. Depression, anxiety, antidepressants, all of it. And, but working with these patients, putting my head in the mouth of the lion um, gave me this clarity about, and I just kind of had a light bulb moment one day of chocolate. I didn't have some lifelong love of chocolate. I liked food. I didn't have any hobbies. The courtroom, that's all I did. So then that's how it happened. So then how'd you end up at chocolate? I was driving to a funeral of a distant relative um, one day, and I thought to myself while I was driving, hey, I think I'll just make chocolate from scratch. I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know it came from a bean. I didn't know there there were trees (laughs) that grew around the equator. I just thought it was like a chemical substance that was melted down. And even though I'd been making desserts with chocolate, um, but within three months of that idea, I was in the Amazon studying how farmers can influence the flavor of chocolate by how they harvest these beans. So it really wasn't, it was just one day driving and that's it. Then I went to the Amazon. I came back uh, I started to wind down my law practice, which took a year to wind that down and bought a building, bought the equipment. This was when nobody was doing it. There were really two or three of us that were starting in the United States at the same time. And, uh, and then now here we are 12 years later. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. It's an incredible story. There's obviously so much that we could talk about just with the growth of the company and how successful you guys have been. And, um, I know a lot of people listening to the podcast will be familiar with your chocolate. Um, it's, in a local coffee shop, which you're speaking at tonight here in town. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's how I first came in contact with it. It's mm-hmm. right there on the table. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. And I, th- I think a lot of people are drawn to it initially, not because they know what it tastes like yet. So they're not aware that it's better than so much other chocolate. Um, but they're intrigued by the story. Mm. Um, so what it, what is the story and how, how are you guys so different from all the other chocolate? Cause it's a lot of uniqueness here. Well, over the years, I've gained this contentment with not having a tagline, not having the perfect one sentence answer to that question. Instead, it's a story. Mm-hmm. It's a story. And if you've got time to talk with me, I'll tell you the story as best I can. I'll tell it on the package as best I can to not interfere with your desire to maybe just buy a chocolate bar. Um, you know, for a friend or spouse or whatever. But to gently tell you that story, if you're interested, in any way that I can. Maybe it's in person. Maybe it's in social media. My daughter runs that for us. Or maybe it's at a speaking event. And because I don't want to grow by leaps and bounds, and I want to stay small, uh, then it's okay. I can do it like that. And, and the story is that we love farmers and we profit share with farmers. We open our books to them. We translate our financial statements into their language. So when I'm in Tanzania, our financials are in Swahili. 
And I've never not profit shared with farmers. I always pay them directly. We have a school lunch program. We're feeding 1,000 kids a day in, in the Philippines right now and have for years. Um, and working with students and working with farmers is our story because my grandparents were farmers. And they had a small farm. They were simple people. And I didn't have the admiration and respect for them while they were alive, unfortunately, because I was, you know, an idiot teenager that didn't want to do chores on the farm. <laughs> I didn't want to bale hay. I didn't want to chop ice in the pond because the cows couldn't drink. I didn't want to do that stuff. But now they know. I hope they know how much I respect and admire them. And so when I'm with farmers in fill-in-the-blank country, I believe I'm honoring my grandparents and what they stood for. And in some ways, it's almost like I'm with them when I'm with farmers and Philippines or Ecuador or wherever. That's amazing. Brag for a second about the company. What have you guys accomplished? Well, a few weeks ago, we won our fourth Good Food Award in San Francisco, and I'm really pleased about that. We win awards all over the world, and I, it's very competitive uh, around the world in this um, space now, craft um, chocolate. When I started, there was nobody and so I'm so thrilled to win awards now, and I feel like I'm really just competing against myself. It's not like <laughs> I, I do have a very, very, very competitive spirit, but it's against me. I mean, I, and the reason is this. I want people to love our chocolate and to buy it because that it tastes good first, and it's enjoyable. And then I want them to, to share it because of who we are because of our story, and they connect to this story. And so what that means is that our chocolate has to always taste a little bit better than the work that we do with students and farmers and community development and digging water wells and all that stuff. I believe that we have to always keep our eye focused on quality. And so that so we enter competitions and try to win awards and and now that I have when I started I had you know five competitors now I have 250 so it's kind of cool to win an award like that in San Francisco and and um, we've been recognized by um, a lot of food people and food journalists um, as kind of leading the way in this um, industry and it's something that I'm proud of um, but I go back to how we started the conversation. There was a tremendous joy that brought me to the place to begin with. So my job is to remember that, to remember that story and to be continually pulling threads from that story into today and to not lose those threads um, while our company is growing. So we grow, we grow only very little each year because I don't want to lose those threads. There are entrepreneurs who can do it all, man. They can, they can scale, they can grow, they can be as big as they want to be and never forget what brought them there and who they are. I do not have that capacity. <laughs> and so I know myself. I know I don't. So I stay small. I don't make as much money. And I've reached a point where I don't even want to make a whole lot more money. Because in my faith, in my faith, I want to stay, not I want, I need to stay under or near God's protective wing, so to speak. I know I need to be sort of nestled in there because I think I'm so great and I'm so cool and I can do things on my own, then I'll, I'll stray and I don't want to do that. I don't want to feel independent. I want to feel dependent. And that, that, so that's my faith. And so that's, you know, why we are not so focused on growth. And if I can keep a daily practice of pulling those threads through of what drew me to the business in the first place, then I won't lose the joy of how this thing all started to begin with. It's not perfect. I mean, it's not every day. It's not every week. But I know what it looks like, and I know what it feels like. I know what it sounds like. Everything you're talking about right now is is actually something that we started talking about before we hit record on the mm -hmm. microphones. Um, and it could just be the season that I'm in. But this idea of 
not caving to the pressure to scale. There's an incredible story in the book about Target that really, um, it just stood out to me as an incredible example of the discipline that is required to to say no, even after telling the story about the investor from Unilever or something like that. It's to later hear about what happened with Target. The short version of the story is that Sean was called in to make a special chocolate bar for Target, and they liked him so much that the board asked him, this small business owner, to come back and share some of his business practices with their team. Sean agreed, and as he talked about the way he ran his company, Target's creative director and VP of marketing coined a phrase, reverse scale. Sean liked it so much that he started using it himself to describe how he does what he does. So I've really sort of um, clung to that notion. I mean, in the way he articulated it, we've been practicing it for years. And the, the, the thing is that our, our culture in this country and, and really in the West as well is grow or die, grow at all cost, scale. And we've been conditioned to believe that when we're asked whether or not our idea, our company, our project is scalable, we've been conditioned to believe if we don't have a great answer for how awesome it is or how awesome it will scale, then it's not valuable. And why? I mean, chambers of commerce want to know because of jobs. Um, Investors want to know for obvious reasons because they want a great ROI and they want out and they want their money and big money. Um, your family wants to know because they think you'll be rich. And many times that may be the case. But what I am asking people to do is consider whether or not the idea or project might have value if it only helps one person. Can we recalibrate what it means for an idea or project to have value without putting this conditioned belief through our entrepreneurial filter every single time about scale. It's not healthy for us. It's not healthy for you. Yeah. And it's, it's not healthy for our families. It's not healthy for our economy, for our employees. And of course there are exceptions to this. I mean, we want to scale malaria relief and famine aid and disaster relief, all of those things. Of course we do. But I'm talking about the standard business decisions that are made in this country that are being made right now. And so if we can sort of decouple that idea of value and growth and believe that impacting a small group of people could have tremendous value um, for them and for us and even for our company, then it's worthy it's a worthy pursuit. And um, I think people just need permission to think otherwise by the business culture that we're in. And amazing things can happen. I, I believe for myself, and we were, we were leading up to this a moment ago, that if I can practice reverse scale um, on a daily or weekly basis, then I have a greater chance of discovering my true self, as Thomas Merton would say, than any other thing that I do in my business life. Yeah. So what do you say to all of the the people who give so much pushback to that? Like they cannot, and you named some of them. Here's a list of all the things that, positive things that happen when certain ideas scale. Is this a black and white rule for everybody? Or is this just a, it varies from person to person? How do you, how do you know when to scale or when to practice reverse scale? I think part of the way you know how to do that is if in, as, as I talk about in the book, and I'm sure you talk about with your listeners, once we've established a vision that's on paper for our, maybe our personal lives or even, or for our business, then this notion of scale and the question of scale can be answered by examining the vision that we've set out for ourselves, for our organization, and for our team, whether it's a five-year vision or a 10-year vision, or in the case of Zingerman's that I write about in the book, they had a 20-year vision. And so these opportunities that are um, presented to us, you know, in, in front of us, 
we, we, we have a chance of making an easier decision by looking at our vision for our company. It's why I asked you before we turned the recorder on, what do you want? That sounds mm-hmm. like such a simple question. Well, most people can't answer that question. Mm-hmm. Most people can't answer it. Now, many would say, well, one of the things I want is financial freedom. And I would, as a cross-examiner, I can't, you can take, you can take the lawyer into, into the <laughs> chocolate factory, but you can't, take the, you can't take the cross-examiner out of the chocolate maker. It's just not going to happen. I would say, what is that? What, is, what, what do you mean, financial? What does that look like? Do you really want that, or do you just want cooler stuff? And so I want to challenge that. It's not black and white for everyone. What I'm saying is, and I said it a moment ago, yes, there are people who can scale and maintain who they are. So it's can you scale without compromise? Not, of- it's not even compromise. It's um, I, can you stay true to yourself? Do you know who you are? If, you've, if you know who you are and you have had some practice of the discovery of your true self, then you're going to know whether or not you can do this thing and grow this way and this size and this velocity and maintain who you are. You're going to know that. And I, I think, again, if we have a life of serving others who need us in some way, and it could be family members. I mean, gee whiz, you've got a family that needs you, you know, a young family. And if, but if we can, if we can serve them, then it's gonna, it, it will, as I said, sharpen our discernment skills. We're wiser people when we're serving others. We just are. You know it. And so we will have a greater sense of wisdom and clarity about whether or not we need to, you know, bring on the investor to, you know, scale to a thousand locations. But I, again, I go back to what do you want? I mean, for me, I know what I want. I want to ride the crest of this wave as long as I can, as long as God's willing for me to be on this wave of taking origin trips, traveling with students. There are times when I travel and I'm with farmers in Tanzania or students where I've actually had a glimpse of heaven. I'm not saying that other people around me saw, you know, anything. And I know that even kind of sounds weird just to hear it myself say it. But what I'm, what I'm trying to say is I encountered the divine for a, just a moment there in my job, you know, in Tanzania when I was doing my work. Well, I don't want to not do that. And so what I'm saying is there's a greater likelihood of losing that if I'm focused on scale. Why? Because I'm going to delegate that stuff. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be writing checks, managing people. I do some of that now, of course. But I, I don't want to lose the things that give me joy and that might offer me an opportunity to have an encounter with the divine for a few moments. Myself, I don't want to lose it. Now, I know the reason I said the crest of the wave is because this isn't going to last. One thing, we know these things are impermanent. It's going to go bye-bye. And when I prayed in the very beginning of this company, you know, please, God, give me something else to do. I was a lawyer, and I said that thing sometimes probably 10 times a day. You know, just give me something else to do. Uh, I prayed, and one of the things I prayed, too, is that I would know when it was time to let it go because I don't want to worship it. I don't want to idolize these, these last few paragraphs that I've spoken. You know, they're not my idol the thing. So this is why I feel like I'm, I'm going to be ready to let go when it's time. I think about that a lot, but I want to hang on while I can, <laughs> but just not too long. Right. Yeah. That's the idea. Yeah. Just like with your kids. Yeah. You see it. Your, your children are, they're, they're growing up literally before your eyes. And I know, I'm sure I don't know you that well, but I'm sure you think to yourself, man, this is going to be over someday. Yeah. I, I mean, better enjoy it. Happening already. It is. It's happening. And so you will you will look back with 
a, a deep sense of gratitude um, for whatever it is that you do to be present with them during these times. You well, will. And I can so often be guilty of justifying the lack of quality time now because of this apparent life that I'm building for us in the future. Yeah. Um, and there's no guarantee that that future will ever come. Um, well, and that's the thing, um, not to get all religious on you, but the, the, the thing is, I believe that eternity is found in the present moment. And I'm not very good at it, so I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I've got that figured out and I know where to find it, the present moment, that is. But I do believe it, though. And you can probably pinpoint a time or two in the last couple of months or maybe during the Christmas season or whatever when you were with your family, you're with your kids, and time kind of stood still. And you became an observer of the situation, whatever it was. I don't know what it was. And you said to yourself, observing you in this situation, man, this is awesome. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Okay. That is where eternity is found. That is the portal to eternity, I believe. And so what we need to do, I think, especially as entrepreneurs, is we need to, we need to practice that. To, so we know what it looks like. Because you're right. This time will be over. We won't be able to get it back. And we'll have a regret. We'll have a regret of what we didn't find in the present moment. We let it go because we were worried about the future. Yeah, yeah. It's so hard, especially for, for us entrepreneurs, because we have, a lot of, we have a lot of burden on us because often we're the CEOs or we're you know, we're, we have, we must contribute to our family and to their sustenance. Yeah. But so I'm not suggesting that this stuff is easy by any stretch. No, it's not. One of the tools that you talked about in the book to figure a lot of this out, finding your vocation to figuring out if you should scale or not, um, is this thing called visioning. Mm -hmm. You talk a little bit about that because sure. I think it's a helpful tool because it doesn't matter if someone's so those who are listening to this are entrepreneurs or just creative freelancers or there's maybe they're a college student who loves telling stories. This idea of visioning is super helpful. I thought it was cool. The, the idea of visioning for yourself or your company, um, I, I got this from one of my mentors, Ari Weinzweig, who was the co-founder of Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And that is a talk about a business story. I mean, anyone interested in, in entrepreneurship and open book management and business should take a look at the story of Zingerman's. And uh, Ari himself has probably written 15 books, business books, uh, that are outstanding, many of which uh, detail this notion of writing a vision for our company. And it works like this. Just in the, the simple steps are, if I was going to ask you to write one for your company, I, I'd gather the leaders or you would gather the leaders of your company or whomever, and, and you would list out the things that you've accomplished, the things that you're proud of. And it gets us, when we're, when we're thinking about all the awesome things we've done, it opens up the story in our brain about what we're capable of, man, what we can mm -hmm. do, right? Mm -hmm. it, it changes, it gives depth to the story. Or what I say, you know, it, it, it's, it's very similitude. Mm. It's the details that hang on the story. That's what make the story. So when we, do, when we write down these accomplishments, then it gets our brain in that mindset. The next thing that we ask people to do is pick a time frame for the vision. So when we, we do this with students, we do this with students in Tanzania. And we say, oh, how about a three-year vision, what you're going to be doing in three years? And then we ask them to write in the present tense as if it's three years from now. So it's 2022 or whatever and a, a day or a week, and tell me on paper, I want you to write for 15 minutes. Don't stop writing. We're, gonna, we're not going to type it. We're going to handwrite it. And tell me about the day. Tell me about the week. What are you seeing? What's happening in your life? What do you feel? Engage all of your senses. Who are you talking to? What character traits have, do you have? Now? Anything. And then we ask them to write two or three more drafts. And this is, a, this is literally a magical tool 
for people. We've done this with a farmer group in Tanzania, 60 farmers, who they didn't think about the next week, let alone 10 years. We're in the middle of a 10-year vision with them. I'm not writing checks for them to go do, to accomplish all their visions. All I'm doing is a facilitator with these very, very poor farmers. I'll never forget when we were writing the vision with the farmers, one of them stood up. We, we had them speak uh, as if they were 10 years in the future. And Franklin stood up in the room and he said, you know, it's 10 years in the future. And I woke up this morning and I slept on a mattress. And when I looked up, I saw a ceiling in my house. And my wife was able to go to the market today and buy the food that we needed. And he sat down and he was crying. Why? Because he'd never allowed himself to think in the future like that. And that was three years ago. Now they're doing it. I saw the number literally um, two days ago because of the talk I'm giving tonight. We have facilitated visions for 1,600 students in middle school and high school between my community in Springfield and over 1,000 students in the village in Tanzania. And we have a a young lady who lives in, in the village for us who's Tanzanian, graduated from the University of Dar es Salaam, to, to, if I could say, coach these kids on their vision. That's what visioning is. That's amazing. So when you talk to these middle school students, do you give them chocolate first and get them all sugared up? Um, I would break that down into two parts. Yes, we give them (laughs) chocolate. No, we don't get them all sugared up. You know, that's funny you mention that. But we, yes, we do. um, We bring chocolate all the time. In fact, I brought you some. But um, <laughs> what you mailed me was incredible. My wife is obsessed with the uh, the vegan chocolate with the coconut milk, and I mean, the, it's I th- it's really important. Uh, I think because um, uh, it's part of our story, and so it's it's also it's another way to engage the sense, senses. And so we absolutely bring chocolate to all of our any workshop that we have with farmers, anything like that, we're going to absolutely bring chocolate and taste it and, and get them thinking about, well, how did that get here? You know, and especially students in Tanzania. Oh, my parents are cocoa farmers. So they get to see this come full circle. So I think that's pretty cool. Sean says the key to enjoying chocolate is simple. But of course, simple isn't the same thing as easy. It's just slowing down. Appreciate the look and feel of what you're about to eat. See if you can figure out some of the story from the packaging. Don't forget to breathe some of it in, since he says taste is about 90% smell. Sean says all this comes pretty naturally to the children of the farmers he works with, since they're aware of how much goes into making the chocolate. The rest of us? have to train ourselves. The word I would use is reverence. The kids don't just gobble it down like they do here. They're very reverential of this little square of chocolate. And it's hot where I go. It's humid, so it's not easy for them to just hold this. But they have this sense of where it comes from in a way that most people don't, yeah. even as children. Yeah. And I, 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 so I... I'm grateful that we have the chance to, um, you know, bring bring them chocolate, and we share awards with with uh, farmers, and we try to celebrate those victories together. That's super cool. And if someone can't find it locally in their area, they can order it online. I'm assuming. Yeah, askanosi.com, and we have a little zip code locator I think on the website too for people who want to see if it's in their area. Yeah, askanosi.com. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's an incredible story. The chocolate is amazing. Um, and your book is really good too, you know, meaningful work. You've mentioned a lot about your faith uh, on this this particular interview, but, you know, people who are listening, regardless of a religious worldview or lack thereof, um, as someone who just read this this week, like I can say there's there's a lot in here to learn from just as an entrepreneur or even if you're not an entrepreneur who's trying to start and grow a large company, Um, but just a creative freelancer who's out there telling stories in the world. 
Um, it's just there's a lot of really good meat here, um, and we're we're all fans of Seth Godin on the Story <laughs> Podcast typically. So the fact that when I saw that, I was like a groundbreaking book. I was like, man, you got Seth to say some really good things. So the fact yeah. that he calls this a must read um, means it's a must read for a lot of our listeners. But on behalf of everyone who listens to the Story Podcasts, more than anything else, I just want to say thank you for the example that you are, the type of leader that you are, the type of business that you're growing, the I know you hear this all the time everywhere you go. I'm sure that it's, it's followed by so much gratitude, but um, it's not every day you get to spend time with an entrepreneur who is wired and thinks the way that that you have and to do so so responsibly and with so much discipline and with so much meaning, uh, which, you know, the, the book is titled Meaningful Work. It's a great title, um, but it feels like you've figured a lot of things out that I hope to figure out that I haven't yet at 35 but I've learned a lot just by listening to you today and, and by reading the book. So thanks for the example that you set. Well, thank you for having me. And it's an honor to be here, truly. And and I'm, I'm thankful for this chance and to be here in person. And and I would just say I haven't figured things out. <laughs> I I'm, knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm figuring. I'm figuring things out. So, but thank you. Thank everyone, you for this chance. Uh, everyone I know who... Uh, as a younger person, when I get to talk to someone, and you're by no means old, uh, but anyone I talk to who's further along than I am, it's like, man, I hope to figure a lot of this out like you do. They all respond by saying, I, I've yet <laughs> yeah. to figure it out. So right. it feels like that's one of the secrets that comes with wisdom. Mm-hmm. But yeah, good stuff. Thank you. I loved this conversation with Sean. I think we're all still figuring things out. I don't know about you, but I certainly feel that way about my own work, both on stage as a speaker and performer, through our company, Astoria Collective, and the work we're doing to build story. Even this podcast, three seasons in, still feels like a work in progress. I'm still, quote, figuring things out. But I've been reminded often throughout my life that if we wait to start until we figure everything out, we'll never get started on anything of meaning because it's often in the process of doing that we discover what we were looking for to begin with. I hope this conversation was as helpful to you as it was to me. It was rich, not just in content, but in chocolate. Naturally, Sean brought a whole case of chocolate bars with him and I'm leaving this mic to go back to my desk and more chocolate than I usually consume in an entire year. But I don't think it'll take that long to eat because it really is some of, if not the best chocolate I've ever had. I'm not just saying that, it really is incredible. I'm not vegan, but their coconut milk vegan chocolate bar is seriously unbelievable. So check out their brand. Um, You can find them online. Just go to askinosie.com. That's A-S-K-I-N-O-S-I-E.com. It's not just good chocolate. It's an incredible company that is good for humanity. I'm seriously blown away by their story. And you can read that story in Sean's book, Meaningful Work. Again, it's Meaningful Work. I sat down planning to skim parts of the book to learn a little bit more about Sean before this interview just to prep. And a few hours later, I had ended up reading the entire thing. It really is worth your time. As always, we appreciate your feedback, either by sharing a link to this episode for others online or by getting directly in touch. I am at Harris the Third. That's just Harris III, like the Roman numeral three on socials, at Harris the Third. And my direct email is Harris at Astoria, I S T O R I A dot com. Please don't hesitate to reach out anytime. I'd love to hear from you. Until then, thanks so much for listening to the Story Podcast. Mm-hmm.